you have a copy of the Westminster Confession, I'd like to read to you from the chapter on effectual calling. Notice you stand when we're reading the scriptures, and you don't stand when we're reading the Westminster Confession. One is the Word of God, the other one is not. So the Westminster Confession, chapter 10 of effectual calling, says this, All those whom God has predestined unto life, and those only, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time, effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are, by nature, to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. Enlightening their minds, spiritually and savingly, to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by his almighty power determining them to that which is good, and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Yet so, as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. And so this doctrine first there, that man is not naturally able to believe. It is the grace of God that causes us to believe. He does that by causing us to understand the things of God. And he enlightens our minds. That is cause that is the cause of removing our unbelief and giving us belief. It's the taking away of the heart of stone, the dead mind, the dead inner man, and giving the heart of flesh, the heart that is alive. We know that death is unbelief, that faith is life. And so what we see is that the scriptures use these ideas of different analogies connected to the idea of being given faith. Here in the text of John, what we're reading about is a man going from blindness to sight. Now, section 2 of the Confession says, This effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man, who is altogether passive therein, until, being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit, he is thereby enabled to answer this call, and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. Section 3. Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit, who works when and where and how he pleases. So also are all other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the Word. Okay, so, generally speaking, the ordinary way in which people come to understand and believe the doctrines is by the preaching of the Word or the reading of a text of Scripture um, or some sound teaching. But it is also the case that God supernaturally can take a person who has no ability to receive the ordinary means and to understand and believe the doctrine. Some people will interpret this as people, some infants, for example, are saved apart from faith. That God just saves them by grace but not through faith. No, that is not true. God supernaturally causes them to understand and believe. And if you think that's somehow impossible, well, it's impossible for you to believe the gospel apart from the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. It is no more supernatural for an infant to understand and believe the doctrines of the gospel than it is for you. And so, we sometimes think of God as less powerful than he is. But we should remember that all of us are recipients supernaturally of faith. Section 4. Others not elected, although they may be called by the ministry of the word, right, so even though you hear the outward call, perfectly functioning ears, 
and may have some common operations of the Spirit. So that would be the light of nature, the work of the Spirit to illuminate people's minds so that they're accountable. Yet they never truly come unto Christ and therefore cannot be saved. Much less can men not professing the Christian religion be saved in any other way whatsoever. Be they never so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature and the law of that religion they do profess, and to assert and maintain that they may is very pernicious and to be detested. All right, so salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. Faith is always understanding with assent, even in infants. So when we think now about this blind man, obviously the blind man is an easy, ready-made analogy for any preacher desiring to talk about how a person goes from unbelief to belief. And that's intentional. It's intentional by God in the text. What we have, remember, in chapter 8 and chapter 9, we have this focus on the idea of light. We have a focus on the idea of light. And the light is associated with the idea of the lampstand in the temple, in the tabernacle. And we know that analogy is used in the book of Revelation, for example, to refer to the lampstand in the churches being the idea of the proclamation objectively of the truth. Okay, So the objective proclamation of the truth is the lampstand. And the idea is that we are blind and we are incapable of seeing that light. So it's not just that we're a bunch of people going around looking. We're not all seeking after God. We're not looking for the truth of God and then we see the light and then we just are drawn to it like moths to a flame. No. We are blind. And sometimes we pretend to see light and sometimes we have delusions about light and we go around and sometimes we call other people to follow after us. And those people who do not see but call others to see are blind guides. And when the blind lead the blind, they all fall into a pit. So what we have is this idea of the man here born blind as a continuation of this section of the text walking through thinking about Christ as the light of the world. So verse 1, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. Now, the way most people in our time deal with this is it's, you expect almost a preacher to just say, silly rabbit, punishments are for sin are for kids. Right? Like, there's, there's no punishments for sins. Nobody, nobody, nobody suffers curse for sin. This is, how dare you even think about that? Right? When preachers say this national disaster occurred because of our national sins, it's the chorus uh, is not a hallelujah chorus. The chorus is a woe to you, shut your mouth chorus. So national sins, sins of families, sins of churches, and sins of individuals, and the idea that God brings curse as punishment or discipline for sin is shouted down everywhere. And Jesus here... This response is commonly interpreted in that way. But the scriptures are very plain that there are, in fact, punishments and disciplines that exist for sin. Even though Jesus here is about to say that this man is not blind because of his sin or because of 
his parents did. So, for example, John chapter 5, verse 14, that we've already studied, says, you remember there was the guy who was infirm for 38 years, and he was back uh, waiting at the pool to be healed, and he was waiting for the angel to stir the waters. And so it says, afterward, after Jesus had, had healed him, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. What was Jesus threatening there? Jesus was saying, don't sin, having been given this great mercy. If you sin, there is likely to be a discipline or punishment that comes from heaven that is worse than the affliction curse you had before. So do you see that the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as the rest of Scripture, does not teach that nobody ever receives curse for sin. Okay, so the disciples are not morons in this question. This is generally going around looking, going, you know, in life, there is a pattern to the way things work. When you sin, it tends to have bad consequences. That is the nature of reality. That's the structure of reality. In addition to that, God supernaturally brings curses for evil work. Right? We, it, this is so popular in our culture. The funny thing is, in culture, if you say God did it, everybody goes, no. If you say karma, everyone goes, oh, wisdom. Think about that. We have to go to Eastern philosophy, and all of a sudden providential judgment becomes wise. But if you say it with the Christian God, how dare you? Such judgment, such judgmentalism. Such, I mean, look at the hypocrisy, right? the stupidity of our culture. It's not karma, it's providential justice. Providential judgment. It happens often. History is replete with such stories. And they are glorious. So let us not pretend to hate when providential judgments occur in time. Let us not pretend as though we don't believe in them. Let us not pretend as though the scriptures do not teach them. The disciples ask, Rabbi, Master, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, what does Jesus teach? What he teaches is not that there's never a time where there's a punishment for sin in this life, and there's never a time when there's discipline for sin in this life. What he says is, in this particular case, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now the first part seems to answer the question, and then in verses 4 and 5 we all kind of go, oh that seems really true and profound, but how does this relate at all to what the question was? Okay, so we'll, we'll get there. So let's go back to verse 1. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So the question that's being asked is, did this individual sin in such a way as to result in curse? Now, notice what that would mean. That would mean the disciples are saying, did this guy commit a sin when he was in his mother's womb that resulted in him being born blind? That's what they're asking. Then, they're asking, or was it an action of his parents 
who are in a covenantal relationship where their actions can result in curse in Israel to the third and fourth generation. Okay? So a covenantal relationship resulting in curse on associated members of the covenant body to the third and fourth generation is possible. The sin of the parents or grandparents or the great-grandparents or the great-great-grandparents Now, all of us have many sins from our forebearers and many sins of our own that would justify God bringing curse upon us. What is the only remedy for curse? Christ taking the curse for us. Every one of our sins and every one of our forebearers' sins is deserving of curse upon them and the generations that follow. That is justice in the pure sense. And so, what God has done in the covenant of grace is he has limited curse to those who are in the visible church to the third and fourth generation. And he has caused blessing to extend out to the thousandth generation. Or you can actually translate it thousands of generations. Now, the causes of curse, the formal cause of curse is the law. Without the law, there's no sin. Without the law, there's no curse. The effectual cause of sin is the decree of God. He predestines every curse that falls on anybody. Now, God's intention in terms of how he instrumentally uses the curse is to punish the reprobate, it's to test people, and it's to discipline his sons. So when you suffer, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you suffer, it is to either discipline you or to test you and not to punish you. And so this idea of all curses that you have in your life, all difficulties, all toil, all strife, all sickness and pain, every death that enters into your life, if you are one who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is used to test you and used to discipline you. Not each one is discipline. But it's one or the other. At least testing always. And testing, when it is met with faith, and obedience always results in reward. Some in this life always at the judgment. Now, another similar place where this question gets asked is in Luke 13, verses 2 to 5. The disciples hear about a tower of Siloam Tower of Siloam. And the Tower of Siloam fell and it crushed 18 men. And Jesus was asked this question Were these guys crushed by this tower because they were the worst people in Galilee? 
Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Hey, look, there's a universal threat there of curse for sin without repentance. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Jesus is saying, in that particular case, these guys aren't the worst Galileans and not the worst people who happened to be in Jerusalem at the time the Tower of Siloam fell. But at the same time, that there's a general threat of all of us for curse without repentance. So, the meritorious cause, the, the basis upon which curse is given to people is either the sin of yourself or the sin of others. So all the curse that we have in our lives is something that we deserve because of Adam's sin, our forebearers' sins, those we're covenantly united to, our own sins. We deserve all of it. We deserve way more curse than we have. And the ultimate cause, the goal for which all curse exists, is to glorify God. Now, what Jesus communicates in verse 3, he says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Okay, what is Jesus saying there? Is he asserting this blind guy and his parents were sinlessly perfect? They were somehow separated out from the original sin of Adam, and they haven't done anything wrong? No, that's not what he's saying. This is just like the way the word sin was used earlier. Remember in chapter 8 about witnesses? It was talking about, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. It was specifically in the context of, he who has not sinned in such a way as to disqualify himself as a witness. Okay? Here also, the point is, not that they have never sinned, but that they don't have a sin that is particularly tied to this particular curse. So we can go around reading Jesus talking about sins in chapters 8 and 9, and if we just make it about sin as a whole, in any of those cases, you're going to find some really bad doctrine that you pull out of that misinterpretation of that text. Apart from Jesus Christ, there are no sinless people that have been born into the world. Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. So in other words, this blindness is not because of a particular sin of him or his parents. This blindness exists in order to display the glory of God. That's another way of saying this is a test. And we're going to see this guy gloriously and magnificently go through this test in a way that brings honor to God at great cost to himself. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Okay, so who sent him? Well, he's been saying all throughout John that he was sent by the Father. He has to work the works of the Father. He has to obey the Father while it is day. What does while it's day mean? Is, is this literally in the literal day? Like, like you know, because nighttime, it's harder to do work. The night is coming when no one can work. Okay, now he's taking night and universalizing it to a thing that nobody can work during. Verse 5, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. All right. What we have, first, 
what's being done here is we are being shown a general principle that applies to all believers. We are all the blind man. We are all those who were once blind and we have been given sight. Okay, we're going to see that work itself out. It follows out here. It's an obvious spiritual analogy. It's a literal event that occurred in history with an obvious, useful symbolism. And Jesus talks about himself as the light of the world and the use of discussing that in the context of blindness. Light is useless to the blind. Light is useless to the blind. Now, the works of the Father who sent Christ are what Christ was sent to do. Remember, this is another teaching of the sufficiency of the law or the regulated principle of life that we should always be doing good works. We should always be doing the things that the Father commands us to do. He's supposed to do it while it's day. And the day is obviously the time of light. And guess who's the light of the world? Christ. So while he's there, it's day. The night is the time after his death. Now, let's plug these things in and let's read this and apply it literally. Let's see, we're going to still run into some difficulty of how we deal with the text. Okay? I must work the works of the Father who sent me, the Son, while I'm still alive. The time when I'm dead is coming, when no one can work. As long as I'm alive in the world, I am the light of the world. Okay, so... Now we get into this, okay, so if Jesus dies, no one can work? What he's doing there is he's transferring the idea of his death to the death of anybody. When you die, your time when you can work here is over. Okay, so you can't do dominion work anymore. You can't do discipleship work anymore. When you die, that's it. Opportunities when lost are gone forever. You have a limited number of moments before the Lord kills you. And you cannot work before the day of judgment and therefore obtain rewards after you die. This is salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the work of Christ alone. And the usefulness of your life is limited to the time period from when you believe to when you die. Make good use of that. That time is limited. Make good use of it. When it is night, you can work no more. Nobody can work anymore. Now, some people try to limit this to Christ only. Okay, So, so if we read this as, that's my interpretation, that's my understanding. I just told you what I think the text is saying. Okay? So some other people will say that this is limited to just the idea that you can't do work anymore if Christ is dead. Okay, so if it's about Christ, then here's what it would mean. Once Christ is dead, you can no longer help Christ in his work and no longer do good work to him or for him in his incarnate form. That's what that would kind of have to mean. Here's the problem. Here's the problem with that interpretation. When Paul persecutes the church, Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? 
So when you do bad stuff to the church, apparently you're doing bad stuff to Jesus. Okay? And interestingly, Jesus says, if you give to one of these little ones or do anything to one of the little ones in the church, even the least in the church, you're doing it for Jesus. So if that's the case, if Jesus is saying, you know, you can only do good works for me and toward me and support me in my work while I'm here, and that would make our lives incapable of supporting Jesus or his work. So I don't think that's the point. If it's making the point that you can only directly help me in my body directly, immediately, without any intermediaries and not to anybody I care about, only while I'm here, then that seems too obvious to be said. So I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's communicating is, when anyone dies, they can no longer do dominion work or discipleship work in the world before the judgment. Opportunity once lost is lost forever. Don't despair and don't kick against the goads of realizing you've missed opportunities in the past. Instead, heed the rebuke of failure and do better in the future. Redeem the time. Did I say you are saved by doing better? No. You're saved to do better, though. And there's an eternal way to glory for doing good works in faith to the glory of God. So that's the point that I think Jesus is making. In the night, no one can work in the same sense that they can during the day. So what is this work? It's applying the law of God to every thought, word, and deed. Those are works worthy of reward. Works that increase dominion over the earth and the advance of godly culture. Works that hasten the discipleship of the world, putting wealth to advance the capability to do what's good, creating artifacts that contain truth, communicated with clarity, brevity, and organization. Culture that beautifies holiness. The ordering of things in such a way that encourages justice. These are the kinds of dominion works that we cannot do when our bodies are in a grave. Verse 6. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam. Interesting. The Siloam. Wasn't there a tower of Siloam that fell on 18 Galileans in Jerusalem? Yes, same place. Interesting to have the same discourse about this idea of curse and relating it to Siloam. Why? Why is this in the scripture in this way? I would suggest to you that it's in the scripture this way so the point is made more memorable so that whenever Siloam comes up, whenever you hear about it here, and whenever the early disciples were thinking about Siloam, it became sort of an emblem of this idea that not all curse is for someone's particular sin. Okay, so he is, he is drawing attention to it, and it's happening. It's becoming a useful thing to record repeatedly, and it creates this theme. So Siloam becomes sort of a, a, a symbol of this idea of not all curse is specifically a punishment. Now, the word Siloam means sent. And so he tells him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam, the pool of the scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So this idea of we receive the restoring work of God, you know, baptism is an obvious symbol about this idea of, of the new life and of being cleansed. And then there's this idea of you are a sent one. Right? What are we sent to do? We're sent to 
disciple the nations. We're sent to glorify God. We're sent to do good works. We're sent to spread the knowledge of God in the earth. So let's talk about, let's break this down a little bit more. The spitting on the ground to make clay. Okay? What was man made of in Genesis? He was made of dust from the ground and the breath of life. Okay? God's breath. So in other words, God gave a spirit. He gave a rational soul and he gave a body. This is not a creative act. This is a recreative act. This is a restoring act. This is a miracle to heal. And so what this does is he takes dust from the ground and the spit. And, you know, this is not explained, but it is put right next to the idea of washing. And so rather than this breath, this first giving of life, there is this idea of, of, of water or washing that is associated with cleansing, the new birth. Now, breath and and water are the most common things we have associated with the idea of the new birth. Earlier in John 3, this breath, this wind of the Spirit. And now we have, we've seen this idea of baptism and washing being associated with it. But here, this, this need, you can't see the light unless you are made able to see. You can't see the light unless you're made able to see. And so this is a, a work that is reminiscent of the creation of man, what does he do? He anoints the eyes with clay. Anointing is to smudge. Okay, it's, he smudged his eyes with clay. He spit, mixed it with dirt, and smudged it on his eyes. Okay, that's what he's doing. This isn't a pouring out. The other kind of anointing is pouring out. This is the smudging kind of anointing. So he spat on the ground, made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So here is this, this, this time of the, the dirt gets cleaned off. He's, he's washing in this pool, and he is made able to see. Now, this is also on the Sabbath, right? We find this out. This is going to be a point of controversy. In the Old Covenant, the Sabbath is originally given as a marker to remember God making and then resting, the creating. Genesis 2 and Exodus 20 give us that. And he rests from creation in order to do the work of providence distinctly. In Deuteronomy 5, the Old Covenant Sabbath is connected to redemption. And in the New Covenant, the Sabbath is more explicitly tied to redemption, and we have a change of day. And in this New Covenant Sabbath is meant to emphasize the recreation. So this spit with the clay is sort of a creative work that is not brand new. It's recreative. It's a cleansing creating, as opposed to the clay with breath back at the original creation. And it's connected to this giving of sight. Now verse 8. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously had sent, sorry, those who had previously seen that he was blind said, is not this he who sat and begged? And some said, this is he. Others said, he is like him. Okay, so get this, right? They're seeing him. He's there. They're talking about it in front of him. And the inclination, rather than just saying, are you the guy? They just start arguing about whether he's the guy in front of him. This is like, it feels like a scene straight out of Fiddler on the Roof. 
just just sort of like Jewish people sitting around talking, and then they could just ask the guy, and they just start arguing with each other. He's standing right there. Eventually, he interrupts and he says, "I'm, hi, I'm I'm the guy. I, you, you thought I was blind, and now I see. I was never deaf. I can hear you talking. I'm right here. This is the guy. Yeah, I'm the guy." Therefore, they said to him, "How were your eyes opened?" He answered and said, "A man called Jesus made clay." And anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and I received sight. Now, a similar miracle that occurred in the Old Testament had to do with Naaman, a commander of armies who, has, who was coming, and I can't remember which empire he was a commander from, maybe it was Assyria. And he was told to, um, to go by a prophet to wash in the Jordan and to have leprosy go away. Okay, so this is a similar thing going back to that, that prophet and that miracle being done. Um, but this is something that, though the blindness was not life-threatening like leprosy is life-threatening, at the same time, the man was born blind, and so it's a unique miracle that nobody had ever caused a man who was born blind to be able to see before. So this is a miracle that was unique and so this idea of cleansing, again, the idea of the past cleansing miracles that have occurred, leprosy is always used as a symbol for sin. Okay, so this idea of being washed from sin. So then they said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. Now, in verse 13, we enter sort of a new literary unit. Okay, so they're talking to him. And this is the first time he gets interrogated by a court. Okay, we know it's a court because this court does an action of a court. And so at first it kind of sounds like a, a random bunch. It says, they brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. And these aren't just a bunch of Pharisees sitting around at the Pharisee club. Okay, this is Pharisees. Who are they? Pharisees are a doctrinal group. They believe in the resurrection. They believe in the infallibility of the whole scripture set. And then they also tend to adopt the infallibility of the doctrine of the elders. And so that's the problem. This church tradition as an authority is something that many of the Pharisees held to. Not all. They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. So the point here is they're bringing him to a council of elders, and this council of elders is a council that is dominated by a majority of Pharisees. Okay, So it would be sort of like, calling somebody before Congress when it's controlled by Republicans and saying they hold him before the Republicans. Right? You'd be like, well, they were Democrats too. They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now, it was the Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put clay in my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Why do they think he doesn't keep the Sabbath? Well, there's two ways people explain this. One is the idea of healing it all on the Sabbath. And the other is that there are some teachers, some older teachers that had written that one of the types of work that was outlawed on the Sabbath would be making bricks. And some of the steps in making bricks would include gathering dust and mixing it with water. And so the idea that that's being interpreted this way. I don't know which it is, 
Maybe some of them thought one, maybe some of them thought the other. But the point is, healing work is not a forbidden work on the Sabbath. And Jesus makes this point over and over and over again. So the works of necessity and mercy are categories that have always been allowed in the law of God. And so this is not a proper interpretation of the Old Testament Sabbath or of the New Testament Sabbath. This is a imposing of man-made law onto the Sabbath to make man for the Sabbath rather than the Sabbath for man. So these guys wrongly interpret Jesus as breaking the Sabbath. It's funny, the book of John, so much of the conflict is about the Sabbath. So much of the conflict is about the Sabbath. And the way so many people talk about it is they kind of ignore it because so many modern evangelicals don't believe in the idea of the fourth commandment anymore. But overwhelmingly in church history, Christians have obviously believed that the fourth commandment is a continuing obligation, that we are to have a Sabbath day, and they have not read it in the way that so many modern preachers deal with this text and all the other Sabbath texts. Right? The point is not that Jesus was breaking the Sabbath, but he was the good guy for doing that. The point is, he wasn't actually breaking the Sabbath. He was the good guy for properly understanding the Sabbath and what's permitted on it. So others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things, do such signs? And there was a division among them. Okay, so, so some of them are trying to say, no, the tradition of the elders about what the Sabbath breaking is, is right. And the other ones are saying, that doesn't seem to hold because these signs would cause us to say, how is it that we can have a guy who was born blind be made well and have this be a demonic sign? And sure, there's supernatural demonic signs, but, but a guy who was born blind being able to see? Like, are we sure we have this right? Are we sure that we're properly interpreting the Sabbath here? And so there's a division. So those are the guys that are saying, you know, the, the, the el- tradition of the elders is not the authority. The scripture is the authority. But they're still trying to figure it out. And so they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? So now they're going, okay, well, you know, how do you answer this question about this guy doing this kind of a sign? And so he said, he's a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him. Notice it changes from Pharisees to Jews. Okay, so now we're using the broader term. Because the Pharisees were the majority, we were using a part to represent the whole. And now we're talking about the whole. And we're using a court. We're talking about a court. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. So a minority, a minority believe the report and say, this is a real sign. This guy's telling the truth. This, like, this, guy, this guy's got to be a prophet. Like, let's think about this more. That's a minority. The majority start to believe that this is actually something that happened when the parents come. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son? who you say was born blind, how then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. 
he is of age, ask him. So, so up through, you know, we don't know, but we do know that he used to be blind and now he sees. Okay, that right there, their report, that, yeah, this is our son, and yes, he was blind and now he's seeing. Okay, that causes the court, the majority of the people in the court to go, this actually happened. This was an actual miracle that happened. But then the part that's following here, right, he's of age, ask him. What is that about? What is that about? Well, let's keep reading. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Okay? If anyone confesses who is Christ, if anyone confesses that Jesus is Christ, they had already prejudged the case without calling Jesus to be able to give an answer about it, without bringing an evidentiary basis and witnesses and without allowing Jesus to cross-examine those witnesses or bring his own witnesses or his own evidence they had made a predetermination against Jesus without a trial and they'd even made a predetermination against anybody who supported him okay think about that the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that Jesus was Christ he would be put out of the synagogue okay, being put out of the synagogue that means being excommunicated. That means being excommunicated. Now, the language of being put out of, being cut off from, you find this also in the Old Testament. And a lot of people read the Old Testament, and every time they see being put out of or being cut off from, they read that as being executed. It is not. In the Old Testament, it is also the language for excommunication. There was excommunication in the Old Testament church. People argue that the civil magistrate punished people for stuff in the Old Testament because there wasn't excommunication. That is an argument you will hear from people. This text obviously proves that the synagogues had excommunication. And furthermore, the Old Testament talks about it a lot. So there was a distinction of church and state in the Old Testament too. They were separate institutions and both of them were governed by the word of God. And this text, as well as many other texts, are proof of that. This is an ignorant view held by people who think the Old Testament is irrelevant. And that's why they haven't read it very carefully. 75% of the Bible is the Old Testament. And if you ignore 75% of the Bible, you're going to misinterpret the remaining 25%. Now, verse 24, so they again called the man who was blind. Oh, sorry. So the parents, let's talk about the parents. So what are the parents doing? The parents are showing cowardice, right? They say, you know, he's of age, ask him, he'll speak for himself. They're afraid of being excommunicated. They know the report. They know that their son was blind and now he sees. They know that Jesus healed him. They think that Jesus is a prophet and not even a prophet. They think he's the prophet and they're afraid to say it because they think they're going to get excommunicated. So they're not willing to talk about Jesus because they don't want to get excommunicated. That's an act of cowardice towards Christ, towards God, towards their son, and towards the church that they're part of. And if their church is a doctrinal error that already pre-condemns Jesus, guess what their duty is? Their duty is to call their church to repentance. But it is very common for human beings to cave in order to maintain social respectability. It is very common for humans to cave in order to maintain social respectability. 
Verse 24, So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. <laughs> what an interesting way to start the conversation. Right? I call you in. Okay, so you were blind and now you can see? How did that happen? The guy put, he put mud on your eyes and then you washed in a pool and you could see? We'll call you back. Come back in. Hi. Give God the glory. This guy's a sinner. Right? This is the guy's experience. This is, what, this is what the blind man is running into with this court. We know that this man is a sinner. They're saying, this, you, you must be lying about how you were healed. It must not have been this guy. You're stealing God's glory and attributing it to this guy. They can't deny the miracle. So they're denying the means. They can't deny the miracle. So they're denying the means. Verse 25. He answered and said, Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. Right? He's saying, Whether he's just a prophet who is also a sinner, I don't know. One thing I know that though I was blind, now I see. So what is he saying? He's saying, Maybe this guy's a sinner. Maybe he's not a sinner. But he was definitely the means by which this miracle occurred to me. So I'm not going to deny that. The man holds his ground. A man that has spent his life in darkness. A man who has spent his life in the house of his parents and spent his life in this synagogue is facing down these elders and saying, Look, I don't know whether this guy is a sinner or not, but I do know that he was the means of the miracle. And they said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them. They understand that he is pushing back and saying he was the means. Because now they're questioning him more about the means. What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them. I told you already, and you did not listen. Okay, He's being... uh, Asked again. Okay, one of the ways of badgering a witness and of trying to make a court go on forever to make it so that a good witness looks like a bad witness is to ask them the same questions over and over and over again until one of the times they kind of slip in how they're answering it, or they try to summarize it because they get tired, and then they don't repeat all the details, and then you go, "Well, before you said this thing happened before that. You didn't mention it this time," which is why one of the objections that a lawyer can issue in Protestant world courts is asked and answered. And a judge will normally respond, sustained. And you don't get to ask the question over and over again. This is an effort to get this guy to say the stuff over and over again because they're trying to figure out a way to attack his testimony. I told you already, and you did not listen. This is a bold response to a court. I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? And rather than saying, it's because you're trying to trip me up, he says, do you also want to become his disciples? The also, the also, the also. What he's saying there is, I'm convinced he's a prophet, and I am his student. I am going to try to learn from him. Do you 
want to come with me? So notice he's affirming he's a disciple. He hasn't even affirmed that he's Christ because he says he's not sure if he's sinless or not. He says, I know this is a true prophet. I don't know if he's sinless, but I am his disciple and I want to learn from him. So he has aligned himself with Jesus and their response, then they reviled him and said, you are his disciple. Yeah, that's what they also meant. But we are Moses' disciples. Well, Jesus already said, if you believe Moses, you believe me. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Why, this is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he's from. Yet he's opened my eyes. Like, really? You're, you're confident that he was not sent from God and he's opened my eyes? Why do, you, why do you think that? Why are you sure about that? What makes you think this is a false miracle or a demonic miracle? What's the basis? Is it, oh, he broke the Sabbath. Well, what is that from? Is that from the scriptures? Or is that a human tradition that you're judging him by? Verse 31. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Okay, so the prayer of Christ is heard on the basis of the righteousness of Christ, not another. For us, our prayers are heard because Christ did the Father's will for us, in our place, in his stead. And so, we are heard as the righteous when we pray through the mediation of Christ. Verse 32. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, You were completely born in sins, and are you teaching us? So now look at this. They're, referring, they're saying, not just that he's born a sinner like everybody. They're saying, you were born in sin so much that you were blind. Like, look how bad you must have been. Because... You were born blind. Jesus has already addressed this. Jesus has already addressed this. He's already said, this guy's not blind because of his sin. He's blind so that the glory of God can be displayed powerfully. They answered and said to him, you were completely born in sins, and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. Now, they seek to attack Jesus. They then attack him. Why? What's his sin? What is the sin of the man who was blind and now can see? His sin was disagreeing with the court. That's an assertion of church authority to determine the truth as opposed to a ministerial authority to receive the truth from the word of God. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Right? So, when you are blind, you do not have the appearance of people to think about. You have their voices to think about. You differentiate who you're talking to based upon the sound of their voice. 
So do you think he recognized the voice of he that made him see? So he calls him Lord. Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus answered to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe. Okay, so he believes him as a true prophet, and then he realizes he's claiming to be the Son of God, which means he understands that he's acclaiming divine essence. Okay? He's claiming divinity. And the response of the blind man who has been made able to see is to worship Jesus. To worship him. If this had been an angel, the angel would have said, I am a creature like you, get up! If this had been the Apostle Peter, he'd have said, I'm a creature like you, get up! When people worship Jesus, Jesus says, that's right. Appropriate response. Nailed it. Worshiping Jesus is the appropriate response. He is the God-man. This is a proof text for the divinity of Christ. If anybody tells you, you get into a Jehovah's Witness, anybody else, anybody tells you that Jesus is not God, then why doesn't he correct it when he's worshipped? And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Okay? Judgment against the angels could have occurred without the incarnation. The demons would be punished, the righteous angels would be rewarded. He came into the world of humans, the world of man, so that those who were blind but were chosen as objects of mercy could be given sight and have salvation and to increase the display of God's curse and wrath on the reprobate who see and are made blind. Notice made blind. They're already blind in the sense of guilty. They're sinning. They're not seeking after God. But God hardens them. People want to run away from the active hardening of God. God actively hardens hearts. He causes people to not repent as well as causing people to repent. It is according to their nature, but God controls it actively, and we should not run away from the fact that God controls everything. Now, he made they, those who see may be made blind. Now, in addition to that, he carries on the last couple of verses here. It says, Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. This is the same thing as what the Apostle Paul does in Romans. In Romans, he shows that the conscience of a man condemns a man. That your own conscience contradicts itself and you are held accountable for doing things contrary to your conscience, thinking things that contradict themselves over time, saying things and doing the opposite. And so Jesus is saying, you know, if you were actually blind and had no basis of accountability, if you didn't see anything at all, then you would have no sin. But you say that you can see. And so, let's judge you by your own claim. You seem to be blind. You seem to be rejecting Christ. So there's this increased responsibility. Intellectual pride increases responsibility. And there's a great danger with intellectual pride. The danger is this. An invincible ignorance. When someone thinks they know, but they can't defend it, and they will not listen, they are invincible to appeals. 
They will not hear them. They will not consider them. They will arrogantly and proudly simply act as though they know. And so, one of the great dangers, one of the great dangers spiritually is to not be willing to patiently listen and to ask other people to explain themselves. When you are sitting in judgment as an authority, fathers, parents, when you are judging in your houses, officers, when we judge in church courts, any of us, when we are dealing with conflict or listening to other people, if we will not hear people out, then we claim to see. And if we don't, there's a great danger. This text is a text that emphasizes for us that Christ is the light of the world and Christ is the one who powerfully by His Spirit gives sight to men that they might see that light. Apart from His work to give us sight, none of us will see. And apart from Him giving light objectively, none of us would see. And so He gives both. He is the light of the world. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights.